Um, hey, we, Jason, Pastor Jason and I, uh, doing a little short two-week mini-series called There Is No Them. And it's really easy when we get in these conflicts, right, and these tensions. It's like, oh, we're fine. They're the ones that are messed up. But as we reflect on Christmas, we, we kind of realize we're them, right? <laughs> we're the messed up ones. No one's, no one's perfect. We're all broken. But the beauty about Christmas is that we have a God who saw our brokenness, who heard our cries, and became man. God Emmanuel, God with us, and dwelled among us. And even as he dwelled among us, he was still pursuing us, even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our brokenness and our mistakes. We saw that with Peter, as Pastor Jason shared about last week, how he just pursued Peter and pursued Peter. And eventually, you know, Peter's heart was, was won over, so to speak. And it created in this, him the sense of gratitude to, to go and serve. And so this week, I just wanted to kind of piggyback off of that idea of in light of the incarnation, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, what now, what does God call us to do? And I want to make a case for you that God is calling us to do the work of justice, to do the work of justice. And so I want to read to you out of um, probably one of the most definitive classic passages on justice, Isaiah 58. Now this is a little bit of a long one, so just sit back, relax, uh, don't fall asleep, okay? Don't fall asleep yet. So I want to read this to you and then we'll pray and then we'll get in, we'll get into the talk, all right? So here we go, Isaiah 58, I'm just going to read uh, from this handout, just read this whole passage, uh, verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves? And you take no knowledge of it. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down with his head? Will you call this a fast, a day that is acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen, that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually 
and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from a Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, Lord, uh, just for another opportunity, God, where we can really come together as a church family and, and worship you and open up your word. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us. I know many of us are coming in here, God, with distractions. Many of us are coming in here with burdens, with hurts, with worries. God, may you speak to us today. May your spirit fill this place. God, may you speak through me, Lord. I pray if there's anything that's not of you that we could just easily dismiss, but that is what of you, God, that is your truth. May it shape us and melt us and, and form us, God, in the people you want us to be. So God, we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I just wanna jump into this. So first off, I wanna talk about the importance of justice. The importance of justice. That justice should be a major, major, major priority in our life, in how we carry ourselves. You know, in verses 1 through 3 in this text, Isaiah is describing a very religious, a very conservative type of people, all right? These are the people, they don't smoke, you know, they don't drink, they don't chew, and they don't roll with girls that do, okay? That's, that's this type of people, all right? I found that on the internet, okay? <sighs> Jokester. All right. So that, that's the type of people. They're very conservative, very religious. And I'm impressed. I mean, we read this, these first three verses. I mean, I'm impressed. They are seeking out God on a daily basis. They're crying out to him. They are wanting, they want to know more of God. They're the type of people that's in the Romans class right now, taking Revelations class. They're the, the midweek Bible fellowships. I mean, they are pursuing the knowledge of God. They are praying for their country. They're praying that God's discernment and judgment and justice would pour down in their country. They are seeking God through fasting. They're withholding food. And as their, their stomach grumbles, it reminds them to, to seek God and to seek his favor. I mean, these are people, when you look on the surface, you're like, man, any of us pastors, we'd be like, man, this is what we want our people to be doing, right? This seems like these are healthy people. And yet, there's a problem. It, what we see is, it's not just a problem. What we see is, it's a huge problem. We see God is upset. God is angry. I may even go to say that God is furious. These people are crying out to him, and God is not answering them. God is not hearing them, and God is not blessing them. And the reason is this, is because these people have turned their backs on the poor 
have turned their backs on the widow, have turned their backs on the orphan, have turned their backs on the immigrant. And God presents this inconvenient truth. And it might even be a shocking or startling truth that if you turn your back on the poor and vulnerable, God will turn his back on you. God will turn his back on you. Church, this is startling. When I first read this, I was, it was very humbling. Because what this text says is God is not impressed with our church attendance today. God is not impressed with our hands lifted high to him. God is not impressed with the memory verses your kids are learning right now that you're teaching them. God is not impressed that you go to a small group on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. All that is meaningless if we have turned our backs on the people who are hurting, on the people who are broken, on the people who are the least of these. It's crazy. Here we are, you know, raising up our hands and God says, I don't, I don't want to hear it from you today. Why is God like that? Why is he so serious about this? It's because of this. It's because God identifies himself with the people at the bottom of the ladder. God identifies himself with the poor. God identifies himself with the widow. You know, when we introduce ourselves, we'll say, hi, you know, I'm David. I'm a pastor at LifePoint. Or hi, I'm Joe. I'm a doctor here. When God introduces himself, he says, I'm the defender of the weak. I'm the father to the fatherless. In Proverbs, God says this, is if you give to the poor, you're given to me. If you curse the poor, you're cursing me. At the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, God says, quit fasting, quit praying, quit doing sacrifices, repent, seek forgiveness, and start doing justice. Start fighting for the widow. Start advocating for the orphan. God is serious. God says, this is, should be the priority of my people. And he says, if you mess with them, you're messing with me. You know, this truth uh, reminds me of a story uh, about my brother Aaron. Some of y'all know my brother Aaron, and he is not like me or my other brother, okay? He's the type of person who I might say something smart alecky to, and he'll come up to me and say, David, you might be smarter than me, but I can still whoop you, you know what, right? I mean, that's, that's Aaron, okay? Blame my parents. But, uh, <laughs> so, but Aaron has a, a huge heart, fiercely loyal. And I remember one day we were hanging out, my brothers and I, we're hanging out by this creek by Hendrick Middle School off of Red River. Some of y'all might know where that's at. And we discover this bag of, of a leftover concrete mix. So we grab it and we're like, all right, we want to make kind of like some type of plaque, right? So we, we pour it out, we mix it with water, and we're, we're writing our names and dates, and we're thinking, all right, this is going to be, you know, something that's going to be at this park for years to come. You know, we're making our mark here. And then all of a sudden, this kid, who we don't even know, rolls up on his bike, starts kind of messing with me and my brother Matt, starts making fun of us, and then we look and he messes up our concrete thing, Right? And he rides off on his bike, and you know what Aaron did? 
Aaron's like, I'm going after him. I was like, oh no, this kid doesn't know what he's in for. He, Aaron hops on his bike and he's gone like 10 minutes and me and Matt are like, oh no, what has Aaron, what is he doing? What has he done? And then I see Aaron from the distance riding back on his bike with one fist up, just screaming, victory, yeah! And we get closer, there's like blood on his fist, right? We're like, Aaron, what did you do to this kid, right? Oh gosh, please, no cops. I'm not an accomplice. I wasn't a part of this, right? But that was my brother Aaron. And Aaron was like, hey, you mess with my brothers. You're messing with me. You mess with my family. You're messing with me. So if you don't like this sermon, all right, you send me an angry email, I just might forward it to Aaron, all right? (laughs) Yeah, be warned, okay? (laughs) Seriously. Uh, No. (laughs) But hey, that's the attitude God has. God's serious. He says, we need to make this a priority in our lives. This isn't something that's cute, that like, oh, that's, you know, what young college students do. This needs to be a priority in every single one of our life. And I want to just, for a moment, just, let's just be honest and really kind of reflect on, on just how we view the poor. You know, on how we really view them. And if you're like me, man, I, I feel conflicted, right? Because there's a part of us that we just want to help and we just want to serve. It's pure. But there's a part of us that when we come across the poor, what, what are we thinking? We think lazy. We think freeloader. We think a moocher. We think welfare. We, we drive by a, a poor part of town and we think, oh, dirty, unsafe. When we think of an immigrant, a foreigner, right, someone not from here, and we, part of us, yeah, we want to help them, but then there's a part of us, I mean, I don't even want to say the things we think about. And guys, that, that's spirit. I mean, if we're being honest, like, that's in all of us. And here we are, like, we're coming to church, I'm giving you this sermon, you guys are listening, we're raising up our hands in worship, like, But that spirit lies in all of us. Like, we're no different than these people in Isaiah 58. And God says, even how you view them, even how you think about them, that's how you think about me. But church, I'm not going to lie to you. The challenge of living in Plano and Collin County is that we want to, I mean, a lot of us probably want to do justice. We prioritize it, but it it almost feels like we're removed from it, right? I mean, when I lived in California, I lived in a low-income, at-risk neighborhood, and I literally, for two months, I had a homeless neighbor. Like, I walked outside the door, and there was my homeless neighbor, Keith. Now, it's not like I was godlier than anyone. I just had that opportunity to obey that commandment more, right? But when we have, but now we're in the suburbs here. And we're in a community of wealth and affluence. And if you think about our lifestyle, we're in one big box, which is our home. And we get in a smaller box, which is our car. And we drive to a building and we stay in another box, which is a cubicle. And we just do that on repeat. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, that's where God has called us. And so, but if, if we live in that type of lifestyle, then we have to be intentional about making this a priority. 
We have to understand, okay, this is God's heart. This is God's calling. This is how he wants me to live. I need to prioritize this because he identifies with the poor. And so I need to make the proper adjustments in order to live this out. And I can't tell you how to do that, but that's how we have to think. God says prioritize justice. This is not just a little thing that we should do. This is a big thing. It's a big thing. So the first off is, hey, it's the importance of justice. But it leads us to this question, all right, well then, what's justice, right? What is justice? Justice is a term I think a lot of us can, we think a lot of different images. You know, I think of Texas justice, right? You know, that judge with that big old hammer, right? Just bringing down the punishment with a gun in his hand, right? You know, Texas justice. Some of us, we think of more of like more of the liberal progressive agenda, like social justice issues, maybe Black Lives Matter or just social forms where we're advocating for the poor, right? Um, social welfare programs. We think of that. I think of my peers, my millennials who are wearing, you know, T-shirts of Africa while they're, uh, you know, drinking like five, six dollar lattes and they think they're doing justice, you know. Um, and so it kind of leads us to this question, okay, well, what is justice? You know, biblical justice is the, the word, uh, the Hebrew word is it's called mishpat, kind of like mish potatoes, okay. That was cheesy, I just wanted to say that. But. Mish, mishpat. And Mishpat has a very full, a very comprehensive kind of definition to it. And so it has at least three things in this definition. First off, justice is equal treatment. It is equal treatment. I want you to, let's read this, this passage again, uh, verses 6 and 7. He says this, Is this not the fast I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Underline that phrase, not hide yourself from your own flesh. The translation's a little mixed here, but what Isaiah's talking about is he's talking about the immigrant. And he's saying the immigrant is your own flesh and blood and that you need to treat them equally. Justice is not just issuing out equal judgment and punishment. That's definitely one side of it. But justice is also issuing out equal protection and equal rights. And Israel had this really radical law in a culture filled full of tribalism and of racism. It had this radical law. And in Leviticus it says the, the foreigner should have the same laws and the same rights as the citizen. And justice, what God is saying is that we need to value treating everyone equally. Now, church, I am a white American male, okay? Um, by definition, I am the privileged of the privilege. I haven't experienced racism. I haven't experienced injustice. Um, I've had a fairly well-to-do, easy, privileged lifestyle. The first time I really, or really felt like a minority was when I met my, my family. My beautiful in-laws. See, my wife is, is Indian, and she grew up in a culture that says, hey, the person you marry is going to be Indian, right? No ifs, ands, buts about it. And that was reinforced on a daily, you know, an, or on a consistent basis. Well, my wife moves to California, gets liberal, you know, sees me, the white, right? <laughs> She's like, I want to marry that, you know. 
Can you blame her? Can you blame her? I know. So we, we hit it off. We start dating. Um, we're falling in love. And it comes time where it's like, hey, Memorial Day weekend's coming. We're going to fly home and meet the family. And uh, my, my wife was really nervous. She's like, David, I mean, they know I'm dating you, but I, they're not, I'm not, I just don't know how it's going to go, right? Me, I'm like, how can they not like me, right? Uh, <laughs> just come on. But guys, I want to tell you this. Um, and if you kind of come from a culture like this, you'll understand how just radical and huge this is. When I stepped into that door, there wasn't a moment in that day I didn't feel loved, cared for, accepted. From day one, I've been one of their own. And I remember sitting down with my, my umachi and my upachin. We are just talking and laughing. My other umachi from Houston would call me different times just to encourage me. And my wife, uh, we were just reflecting on this. Just this week, and we were just thinking, Sarah's like, David, it's, I'm, I do not take for granted that I can leave you alone with my family for four hours and no one blinks an eye, right? And she shares this. We're in a, doing a family time. We're doing that, hey, what are you thankful for thing? And Sarah shares this. And she's like, I'm just so glad you have accepted David. And my umichi raises up her hands, and she says, it doesn't matter what skin color you are, what race you are, we're all children of Adam. And without them even probably even thinking about it, they're doing justice. It's a beautiful thing. Justice is valuing equality. Justice is valuing that we treat everybody the same way, whether they look like us or not. So that's the first part of justice. That's the first part of this definition. The, the second part is, is this, is that um, while justice is equal treatment, Justice is also special care, um, had to look at the screen, special care for the vulnerable. So what's interesting is this, is yeah, doing justice is being fair to everybody, but doing justice is also recognizing that there's certain groups of people who have been, or who are more disadvantaged, who are more vulnerable, and thus they require special concern. We kind of get glimpses of this in this passage. Isaiah talks about the refugee. He talks about the widow. He talks about the homeless. The sister passage to this text is Zechariah 7. And Zechariah 7 gives us what theologians call the quartet of the vulnerable. That anytime you study poverty or justice, you'll always see four groups of people. It's the orphan, it's the widow, it's the foreigner, and it's the poor. And what God's word says is that these people need special attention. That these people need special care. Now guys, most of us in here, we don't need special care, right? If I have an emergency that hits me, I'm going to call my dad and say, Dad, I want to give you an opportunity to give today, okay? I want to give you an opportunity to experience the, the blessings of giving, all right? I mean, that's our safety net, right? Most of us can say that's our story. But not everybody, Widows, not all the widows can't. Orphans definitely can't. Foreigners and refugees can't. The poor, when emergencies hit, where's their safety net? And so it's like a classroom setting. You're, you're teaching 
your students and you give them, all right, this is the lesson today. This is what you, you guys need to know. This is how you do it. These are the expectations. And there's always a couple kids who are just behind. They're just not getting it, right? But what the just thing to do is to say, okay, I'm going to show special care for those individuals. I'm going to show special care for those groups. And so justice is this equal treatment, but it's also going above and beyond for certain groups of people. And you don't need to apologize about that. You don't need to defend that. I remember I was with a group of pastors once, and I was like, hey, man, it's my heart to go to under-resourced communities and really just bring shalom and God's healing there. And they're you know, like, why? Why the poor, right? Why do we need to target the poor? I was like, because God says so. <laughs> like, it's a priority. And so we have to have that, that special care. Lastly, uh, point number three is, or the third part of this definition is this, is justice is generosity. Justice is generosity. Look at the middle of this verse and what it says. God says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Circle that word, share. See, generosity isn't just charity, it's justice. It's justice. You know, when it comes to our money, we're very possessive of it, aren't we not? Say, I worked hard for this, I earned this, no one should tell me how I should spend my money, right? I mean, if I want to give to the poor, let me give to the poor, but this is my money and I've earned it, so I have the right to do it. And God says, no. God says, absolutely not. In Job chapter 31, Job says, God, if I have withheld my riches and my fortunes from anyone, forgive me of my sin. Church, we live in Collin County. Let's just be honest. We live in one of the wealthiest counties in the world. In the world. Remember that whole Occupy Wall Street movement a few years ago? The whole 1%, 99%? We're the 1%. We might not be the 0.5%, but we're the 1%. And we live in a wonderful community that is safe with good policemen, good firefighters, great schools, safe streets. It's a great place to live. But guys, there's also other communities. 30 minutes from here, where we took our students to West Dallas to do a service project down there. And we discovered, you want to know what West Dallas struggles with? They have a dog problem. They have like wild dogs roaming the streets. In West Dallas, there are neighborhoods. You can target, you know where they're at, where there are crack homes. And there are families living next door to them. Guys, we have to be honest. Their trajectory is going to be a whole lot different than the kids going to Frisco ID, ISD. I mean, and we can, there's a whole lot of reasons where we could, we could say, okay, maybe it's the system that's broken. Liberals will say it's the system that we need to fix. Conservatives will say, hey, it's, it's the family that's broken. We got to restore the family. But no one says it's the kid's fault. And church, God has blessed us. God has given us resources. God has given us privileges. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we don't need to feel guilty about that. But let me tell you this. With great privilege comes great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. 
And we view that crack home as something that's unjust, that's making that street unsafe. But let me tell you what's unjust is for people like you and I to hold on to our wealth and say, I'm just going to use it for what I want to do with it. That's unjust too. And so God says justice is equal treatment. Justice is the special care. And justice is, it's, it's a value of generosity. It's a value of I'm going to use the blessings and the privileges that God has given me to bless other people. But here's the great news. We've had some hard things. Hopefully you're not feeling too guilty. I don't want you to feel too guilty, okay? I know this is a hard topic, but here's the great news. Very convenient truth. Great truth is this. Point number three, blessings will come from doing justice. Blessings will come from doing justice. Guys, you will find satisfaction. You will find fulfillment as you pursue justice. Look at uh, the middle of this passage, and I think it's probably... Um, all right, in the middle, I'll just read it. I think it's like verse 11. It says, and the Lord will, these are, God says, if you do justice, this is what he says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Circle that word satisfy. Church, we are a people and we live in a culture that is pursuing and running after satisfaction. Running after pleasure. And we're trying to find our fulfillment in money. And we're trying to find our fulfillment in education. And we're trying to find fulfillment in our kids or in relationships. But if you've spent any time living, you know that that stuff's a little bit counterfeit. It's a little bit empty after. After it might taste good, but it, it doesn't satisfy. But God gives us this, this radical truth. If you want fulfillment, if you want satisfaction, if you want healing, if you want God to rebuild your family, to rebuild your neighborhood, to rebuild your city, pursue justice. And then you will be blessed. We took a group of students in March to New Orleans um, on a mission trip, vision trip, where we stayed in the French Quarter and just kind of partnered with a church that's loving the poor and loving the least of these. We went to kind of drug rehab centers. We went to women's shelters. We had lunches with the homeless. And um, it was a beautiful thing. But I, I was a little nervous because in our student ministry, I don't know if you guys know this, um, I wouldn't say this is the majority, but this is definitely common. We have a lot of students who struggle with depression, who struggle with anxiety, who struggle with self-harm. And I'm not quite sure all the factors for it. I mean, from my issue, I feel like, man, they have all these expectations to be perfect at school, to be perfect at home, to have it right here. And I, I wonder if they're just cracking, Right. But we have these students. This is the struggle. It's very common. And, and these kids, you know, they're on medication. They're going to counselors. I mean, we're throwing every resource that we can at them. And so we had a few of these students who came on this trip. And I was really wondering how, what was going to happen. But this was the crazy thing. At the end of our trip, as we're sharing in our group in a circle, one of these girls, she said, guys, I struggle with depression, I struggle with self-harm, I struggle with anxiety. 
that this has been the best week of my life. I haven't even thought about those, that stuff for one second. And what she shared was she was scared to go home and to face those realities again. Now, guys, I don't want to minimize this. Like, okay, this is, you know, just send your kid on a mission trip. They'll be healed. Like, you know, these things are complex. But God gives us a promise. Jesus gives us a promise, and he says this. If you try to find yourself, you're going to lose yourself. But if you lose yourself for my sake, you will find yourself. That's a promise. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessing. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then you will be blessed. And so church, quit running after counterfeit, meaningless things. Run after justice. Run after what is right. Run after what is true. Now, here's the temptation, though. This is the temptation is this. is like, okay, you're like, yeah, I want to be blessed. I want healing. I want satisfaction. So you're going to walk out this door and you're going to look up the, a nonprofit. You're going to look to mentor at Razor, be a Stevens minister. You know, you're going to try to look for those things. And you're like, okay, then I'll be blessed. But guys, I want to warn you from that. Because if you do that, you're just like these people. Is you, you're not caring about God. You're just using God to get what you want. It's like... At Christmas, you know, my, I was with my family uh, day after Thanksgiving. We put up the tree, and my nephew Andrew, uh, my dad brought out this huge gift, like huge, right? Like huge. And he comes out, and Andrew just loses it, right? He's like, yes, right? Like it's manna from heaven. Praise God, right? And what do we tell him? We tell him what you guys tell your kids. Now, if you want this gift, right, you better be good, you know? Don't be naughty, Right? Now, guys, do kids really care about being good? <laughs> you know, like, they just want that gift, right? They'll do whatever it takes to get that gift. That might work with kids, but that doesn't work with God. God sees through our hearts. He sees through our intentions. And so the last question that I have is this. Okay, well then, how can we prioritize justice? How can we do justice? How can we reap the benefits of doing justice? in a way that honors God, in a way that, it ha- that comes from a pure heart and a pure motive. Where do we begin? Look at verse 13. It's, I think the truth is a little bit hidden in here, but look at, look at this. He says, if you, turn your back, your back, uh, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and underline that phrase, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or taking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. What God is telling his people is that if you want to do justice the right way, is that you have to find delight in God. You have to find God in and of himself joyful, and honorable, or another way of saying it is beautiful. See, when you think something is beautiful, you'll put up with a lot in order to experience the beauty, right? In order to experience the delight. 
Every summer, so many of us, we pack up our vans, we go to Colorado, right? We spend hundreds of dollars on gas, on food, on lodging. So what? So we can delight in that Rocky Mountain air and those Rocky Mountains. When I was dating my wife, there are multiple weekends. I drive down from L.A. to San Diego, spend all day with my wife, and then late at night, come all the way back, get four hours, five hours of sleep, give a sermon the next day, and just do that repeatedly. And my wife, she would work long days, and then Sunday morning, drive up, wake up at like 6 a.m. To, to drive to my church to listen to me preach a, a below-average sermon, right? Poor thing. But why do we do those things? We do it because there's beauty. There's delight. And so the question is, is what's the beauty? What's the honor? What's the delight that's going to drive us to do justice? Church, what it is, is what the meaning of Christmas is all about. Is that we have a God who is dwelling in the most high, experiencing the joy and love and fellowship with his father. And he became a man and he entered into poverty. He was born poor. He was born in a manger. He was born in a feed trough. And then eight days later, when it was time for him to be circumcised, his parents brought him to the temple. And they gave an offering of two pigeons, which is what the poorest of the poor could only give. And then Herod made a decree. He said, any firstborn that's just been born, right? Two years and younger. Any firstborn is going to be killed and executed. And so Joseph and Mary take their baby and they run to Egypt. And we see our Savior as an immigrant, as a refugee. And then in Jesus' adult life, as he's doing his ministry, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Our Savior was homeless. And then at the end of his life, our Savior was incredibly treated so unjustly. An innocent man arrested. An innocent man not given a fair trial. And an innocent man executed for the world to see. With his only possession that he had left was a little garment that his executioners were gambling on. Church, why would Jesus do that? Why would he do that, guys? Church, he did that because we were the orphans. There is no them. We're the orphans. We were wandering without a spiritual family. And Jesus spread out his arms and was crucified and rose again so that we could be called the sons of God and the children of God. Church, we were the immigrants. We were the refugees wandering around aimlessly, crying out in the dark. And it's Jesus who heard our cry. And it's Jesus who went into the darkness so that we could have citizenship of the kingdom of God. Church, we were the widows. In Revelation 19, has this beautiful picture that when Jesus returns, there's going to be a beautiful wedding and a beautiful wedding feast. 
where the groom, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is reunited with his bride, the church. We were widows, and yet God brought us in. And church, Jesus did it because we were poor. There was nothing that we could do, have done, that could impress God. Isaiah says our works, our accomplishments, no matter how great we think we are, they're just filthy rags. And yet Jesus entered into poverty, became nothing, lived the life we should have lived, and died the death that we should have died and rose again so that you and I could experience the richness of grace, the richness of mercy, the richness of knowing that we are forever his. And when you see Jesus doing that for you, when you see Jesus doing that for your kids, when you see Jesus doing that for the people that you so care about, what more beautiful is that? What more honorable is that? And it's that truth, it's the gospel that will compel us and drive us to do justice. Church, I want us to be a people of, of justice. I, I hope you're not feeling too guilty. Sometimes a little guilt's all right, but God uses, God wants to convict us to, to lead us into to fulfillment. What I want from you guys is just to be blown away by just how gracious our God is to us. Uh, I was talking to my dad uh, Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and we were just talking about what a good pastor looks like. And he, he told me a good pastor's got to love his church because <laughs> we're family. And I want you guys to know we're family. And you're loved here. And you're accepted here. And we're in this together. We're broken. We're messed up. We're a ragamuffin bunch, but doggone it. We're going to fix our eyes on the Lord, and we're going to do the justice that he calls us to do. Amen? Amen. You can clap. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, God, we love you. And God, I thank you, Lord, that while we were the orphan, while we were the widow, while we were the poor, while we were the, the immigrant, the foreigner, God, you heard our cries, you saw our hurts, and you became one of us. God, you didn't just sympathize, you, you became one of us. You bore our burdens, you carried our sorrows. And God, you bore our grief and our shame and our sin on that cross. God, may we live in light of that. May we be moved by that. May we never lose sight of that, God. We are yours. You have bought us with a price. We didn't deserve it, and yet you still did it for us, God. God, I pray, Lord, that we could be a different type of church. A church that acknowledges, yeah, we got privilege, we got resources, we have access to things that people don't have. And yet we feel compelled because of what you've done for us, God, to pour that out and to give relentlessly and recklessly to those that you call your very own, to those that you identify with. If there's anyone in here 
who's never heard the, heard the good news that we were orphans, that we were widows, that we were sinners, and yet Jesus Christ died for you, that he rose again, and that he's offering you acceptance and fulfillment and purpose and salvation and everlasting life. I just want to give you an opportunity right now to simply cry out to God with just a whisper and just say, God, I admit that I'm broken, but I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again. And I give my life to you. If you pray that prayer, God says, for anyone who believes in his heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you will be saved. So if that's you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and kind of point you in the right direction. God, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done in our lives. God, help us to live justly and to walk humbly, God, before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.